But I think the world is, is, is not going to go back to the globally integrated economic structure that most uh, investors have grown comfortable with. Hello and welcome to the Thematic Outlook podcast series, part of Cowan Insights Podcast. My name is Bill Berg, Cowan Head of Thematic Content, and today we have a special guest from Cowan Washington Research Group, Roman Schweizer. Today's topic is geopolitics, which may prove to be one of the most disruptive and influential themes in coming years. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the largest, most aggressive military mobilization since World War II. Meanwhile, in Asia, China is ratcheting up pressure on Taiwan in a potential land grab with very far-reaching consequences. Our guest today is Roman Schweizer, who covers geopolitical security and defense policy for Cowan Washington Research Group. Prior to his career in policy research, Roman worked as an acquisition professional in U.S. Navy shipbuilding. He has also worked as a consultant to Fortune 100 companies on U.S. and international defense, aerospace, homeland security, and technology market sectors. Roman, we're honored to have you on the show this month. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Roman, there, there's so much to talk about and cover in geopolitics. Let's start at a very high level. What, if anything, do you believe investors may underappreciate about the current geopolitical setup? That is the big one, I think. And really, to me, it's the pace and permanence of the change that, uh, that really the global security and economic system is in the midst of right now and will go through over the next several years. I mean, uh, it, it's trite to say that, uh, you know, the world is uncertain and the world is getting more dangerous. You know, I hear that from national security officials all the time, and, and that's sort of always been the case. But, you know, it, it's tough to sort of define the era that you're living in when you're in the middle of it. You know, we had the sort of uh, Cold War and that kind of dawned on people in the post-Cold War world and then 9-11 and post-9-11. And, and, and I don't know what we're into now, uh, you know, an era of geopolitical competition, you know, China and Russia, you know, sort of emerged as this, you know, sort of competitors to the U.S. But I think the world is, is, is not going to go back to the globally integrated economic structure that most uh, investors have grown comfortable with over, you know, really since the, since the 90s. So call it, you know, 30 years or so. Th there are shifts underway that will have far-reaching uh, and permanent effects, you know, U.S. China technology decoupling is, is sort of one example. Obviously, the, the you know the European and Russia energy decoupling is another. And uh, you know, over the last twenty or thirty years, this global economic structure integration has really been based on uh, certain alliance frameworks, security guarantees, and general rules of the road. And those those have all been sort of. I mean, I, I hate to you know say it was sort of blown apart um, either by the the US China you know loosely used the term decoupling uh, and certainly the, you know Russia's aggressive behavior in, in Europe those are all changing and uh, you know I, I had to go back in, into the files but my you know the first note I published with with Cowan, I, I used the term new world disorder, and, and really, uh, I kind of regret how accurate that's been, but I think that that is really going to be more of a, you know, simply more of a feature than a bug uh, in, in this new alignment structure. You're going to see a lot of this changing alliances, and uh, and that's those are going to have economic impacts as well. Roman, how do you see the U.S. balancing 
its two biggest current foreign policy challenges with Russia and China? That's a, that's a tough one, even uh, even in the best case. And, and and I really think you know if you, if if you read a, a lot of uh, works, and there's certainly uh, uh, you know book Thucydides' Trap by uh, uh, Graham Allison. If you you know this idea of rising power and established powers and things like that, and and you know the 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 challenge that China presents to the United States, um, you know from a sheer economic perspective, is something that the the U.S. has never faced before. But now, if you sort of lump sort of a willing Russia or a, a you know into that mix, uh, you know a loosely based you know unending or you know uh, friendship alliance between the two, it's 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 really challenging. Now that's not to say that you know the U.S. doesn't have its own allies and, and freedom-loving d- democracies around the world in Europe and Asia as well, and, and and I think that's what we're starting to see. But but from a U.S. government perspective, Putin's invasion of Ukraine was was not expected and and really hasn't been helpful. At least in, in Washington, you know where I am, it's 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 been viewed as a distraction uh, in some ways um, and and siphoning resources that really would be uh, applied to the to the long term threat China. Which is, you know, really, uh, and again, as I, as I referenced, what considered by many as a more formidable challenger, both from an economic, uh, technology, and, and a military uh, supremacy per, uh, perspective. So Russia has, you know, sort of forced the U.S. to divide its attention and resources, and and hopefully head off or blunt a, a major war in Europe. That you know, I mean, really, when we think about it, you know. There, there is a general fear that that you know unchecked Russian aggression could spread into the Baltics, into some of the former Soviet Union territories and things like that. And so um, there's a lot of concern now that once the genie is out of the bottle, that this really does you know could become a wider European uh, conflagration. The thing that I would say, and and I don't want to, I don't think this is all that controversial, and and I I hate to say it as a describe it as a positive byproduct because. Uh, you know, obviously, the the magnitude of uh, death and human suffering and, and destruction in, in Ukraine is you know nothing's positive at all about that. So I just want to you know preface that. But you know, sort of a, a byproduct uh, has been at least it, it, it's forced the Europeans to pick a side, uh, and you see that you know certainly within the broader EU, uh, within the NATO alliance. Um, and again, just just think of the idea that, you know, Finland and Sweden are on the cusp of becoming official uh, members of NATO. Now, that hopefully will happen, assuming uh, Turkish President Recep Erdogan doesn't use his uh, veto, um, which is something that's, uh, again, showing how complicated the world is. But, you know, the Europeans haven't been able to straddle and particularly for the Germans. This is a this is a tough Tough call, you know, given the the economic or really energy dependence, the, the decisions that Germany made 20 years ago in terms of its its view on engagement with Russia. So the Europeans have come along begrudgingly in some cases and are trying to not completely uh, tank or demolish their economies by supporting tough export controls and sanctions. I think the really the key question that many in the in the West and Russia and China are looking to see is whether or not. European voters are going to sort of punish or, or whether they're willing to sort of bear the economic and societal burdens of the current sanctions regime, the energy crunch, the inflation, the, the recession that, that Western Europe is, is faced with. You can see that on the, you know, the difference in, in how the alliance is, is sort of dealing with this. I mean, the, certainly the 
the Germans and the French and the Italians are, are concerned about the economic impacts of, of what some of these broader, um, you know, uh, sanctions and export controls and policies may have. Whereas the countries that are sort of in the direct line of march of the Russians, uh, Estonia, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, Georgia, some others could care less about the economics and they they want the Ukraine to win. They want a a a, a tough fight. Boris Johnson was not uh, you know was didn't did not have a no confidence vote because largely because of his support of Ukraine. But I think you know obviously uh, French President uh, Emmanuel Macron and and certainly uh, German uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz you know have to be sensitive to the economic pain that uh, German and French citizens are being asked to bear to, to sort of stand up to the Russians and, and we'll see how that plays out. Uh, and, and of course Vladimir Putin and Xi in China do not have to worry about. Uh, free and, and open elections uh, as they're in, in their political future. Roman, let's unpack some more of your thoughts on the Ukraine war. What will it take for Putin to end it? What does victory look like for the U.S.? And what's your base case for the duration of the war? Wow. So that is, uh, you know, I, I would say I have been pretty consistent, I think, in, in sort of taking the longer term, I would say, you know, sort of the over to uh, to use the uh, one one uh, metaphor. But I mean, you know, certainly most of the conventional wisdom uh, was that, you know, Ukraine was going to uh, to fold, uh, you know, within the first 20, you know, 48 to 72 hours. Um, obviously, that didn't didn't happen, uh, and for a lot of reasons, uh, and and mainly the, the bravery uh, of the Ukrainian uh, defense uh, forces. You know, uh, Putin was not able to kill or decapitate Ukrainian leadership. Uh, you know, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is still alive uh, and and has uh, become. You know, I think most people would have not had uh, you know him as being a 21st century Winston Churchill. But he has managed to do that and 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 rally support around the world. And so I, I don't think Putin ends the war unless he wins. Uh, now wins, you know, can be defined uh, in different ways. Um, and certainly, I think he thought this might have been easier uh, than than it has been for sure. Uh, I think he probably misjudged some of the European and and U.S. reaction uh, as well. But I think he has the wherewithal to continue to grind this out. Uh, and, and really, you know, the the you know the the unfortunate truth is that the U.S. and EU can't really bring to bear the real crushing economic sanctions, you know, on export controls, on energy, uh, without crushing themselves. And and also, look, Russia still has friends, key countries, you know, and obviously the Chinese are are providing non-overt support um, to the degree they can. And, and China has a long-term interest in, in Putin's uh, survival. But even countries like India and Turkey, you know, which are either you know, buying energy, uh, stepped up their energy purchases from Russia, uh, or you know, trade and other materials, uh, are, you know, th those countries are playing both sides. So, I mean, it, it's, you know, I, nothing is analogous exactly to the Cold War, but, um, you know, it, it, back in the day, you had NATO, the Warsaw Pact, and a huge non-aligned movement. Uh, and you can sort of see the world devolving, unfortunately, into sort of those things, a, a, a U.S.-led uh, uh, alliance of like-minded democracies, a China- slash Russian-led 
alliance of, you know, sort of international ne'er-do-wells like a North Korea, like Iran, and like some others, uh, and then countries that are going to be non-aligned and, and believe it's in their best interests in a lot of cases to straddle the fence and play both sides, even even an ally like the Philippines. Uh, you see that uh, in, in, in Asia or a traditional U.S. ally in the Philippines, uh, like the Philippines. What's the base case for a duration of the war? You know, the, I, I believe this clearly goes into next year. Uh, I think just at least in the near term, you know, the Ukrainians are on the offensive that could, they, that could have shockingly good results or could just really soak up a lot of your um, Ukrainian precious resources in terms of manpower material. So we'll, we'll see. Um, offense is a lot harder than defense, um, which the you know the Russians well know over the last, uh, you know, almost more than six months. But so I, I really think we're going to get to a you know, by the time it really gets cold in winter and call it, you know, maybe November or certainly December, both sides are going to kind of hunker down. And I think whether or not we'll see an official ceasefire, we'll see some sort of pause uh, while, while both sides sort of look to refit and uh, and rearm and recuperate. And uh, and then probably something starts again, starts up again next year, uh, you know, probably either maybe during the tail end of the winter freeze uh, or after the uh, the winter thaw. But I, I would I would agree. I mean, I tend to think that this is just a continuation of a campaign that Putin started in 2014, and, and he's not going to stop until he gets all of Ukraine. Roman, turning to U.S.-China tensions, how do you see the situation with Taiwan playing out? And what are some of the more plausible scenarios? Yeah, that's a that's a, a great question, and certainly uh, one that gets asked a lot. And I think the the only uh, man who really knows the answer to that is uh, is Xi Jinping. I mean, this is clearly his decision uh, and his internal calculus, uh, and, and really, you know, it, it is it is anyone's guess as to what's in his mind. I mean, I would say, I mean, I think if you're you know, sort of handicapping this, and there's obviously a lot of chatter about this, that, you know, looking at, you know, Putin and the Ukraine and sort of do autocrats, uh, you know, get the right, um, real, the real talk, hashtag real talk from their generals about, uh, you know, what the state, the capability of their own military is and what the capabilities of the opposing forces, you know, do they get the answer that, uh, um, that they want, or do they get the truth? You know, is the Chinese military really as ready as as the Russians? It's you know, it's uh, is it better? Um, you know, I think those are all big questions that he he sort of needs to consider. And I think the view is that he gets one chance at this, right? And and if it's something um, quick, fait accompli, almost that the uh, that the rest of the world has to just begrudgingly accept for other economic and technological reasons. Um, you know, leverage uh, over the West, then he'll he'll call that shot when he's you know sort of ready when he believes. I think from a military perspective, uh, there's a view that China won't have the the right amount of of military force and technology and training and all the you know the sort of complex things that go into it uh, until the 2025 to 2027 timeframe. That's this sort of period um, called the Davidson window. Uh, for defense nerds, uh, it, it's basically the it's it's named after the former head of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, uh, Admiral Phil Davidson, uh, and that's when he sort of um, assessed, you know, that that the the Chinese would have the right level of uh, you know manpower, material, training, you know, all of this stuff practiced together to 
to really, I mean, look, this is this is a this is a hard problem for the Chinese military. I mean, the Taiwan is 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 a hundred to one hundred ten miles away. You know, I think uh, Normandy was maybe thirteen miles across the English Channel. Uh, so, I mean, you're you're really talking about something the equivalent of uh, you know D-Day, uh, you know, ten times the distance. You know, with all eyes on the world, uh, you know, and satellite imagery, and and, and really not a lot of uh, ability to uh, d disguise what, what you're doing. So, you know, I, I can't, I'm certainly not in a position to disagree with, uh, with Admiral Davidson when he calls 2025 to 2027. Uh, I think, you know, really now it's, it's a race between the U.S., uh, the U.S.'s ability to, one, shift forces and develop technologies to combat this potential challenge uh, in, in Taiwan and elsewhere where uh, China has, you know, either territorial claims or otherwise. And uh, Taiwan's ability to really, you know, focus, uh, at, it, focus and improve its military, you know, really along the line, I think, I think Ukraine will, will have some lessons learned, you know, sort of in terms of active defenses and, and things like that. So there's, there's really some things that, that the U.S. and Taiwan could do kind of in short order to, to, to make it a, even a harder, you know, tough, harder nut to crack, uh, really create a, a hedgehog type defense. Uh, and then really that, you know, the Chinese, what, what they decide to do in terms of, uh, you know, strategy and, and reaction. I mean, I would say that, you know, the initial Chinese response after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's recent visit, you know, the what what is you know, by, by some called the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis uh, showed that, that the Chinese military has it is a much different military than the one in from the last crisis in 1996, 1997. You know, they have an ability to project power to launch anti-ship missiles at range, to coordinate aircraft operations on the eastern side of Taiwan, um, to do a, to a lot of different things to uh, th than they you know than than they've uh, shown previously, but still this is a this is a varsity level exercise to pull off an operation like that, and you know they they've shown it sort of an ability to you know partially blockade or isolate Taiwan. Uh, I, that that would be a much different um, sort of strategy and require a much different um, diplomatic approach. Uh, I, I really do. I, th I think to me, the, the most plausible scenario, at least for the next several years, is uh, a concerted effort to, to beef up Taiwan's ability to defend itself. Uh, and then really something that started on the Trump administration, but an alliance building effort between the US, Japan, Australia, and India, loosely, you know, not, we're not loosely, actually formally known as the Quad, uh, as well as others in the region to, you know, really preserve the status quo, but maybe push that Davidson window further out into the future. And so that that, you know, sort of tipping point moment or, or window, you know, just kind of keeps getting pushed out as, as a, a Taiwanese developed capability. And it's, a, you know, a, a back and forth like that. Roman, as we look at elevated geopolitical tensions, and also what we're learning from recent strategies on the ground in the Ukraine, what do you believe are the implications for U.S. defense spending? Look, I mean, it, it, it's a pretty simple answer. Spending is going up. Um, and, and interestingly, I mean, the thing I think people may not realize, but I mean, 
know, spending went up a lot during the first two years of the uh, Trump administration uh, and then really kind of moderated in, in the final two years. You know, right now, U.S. defense spending is, you know, roughly, you know, looks like it's going to be about $800 billion for fiscal year 23. Congress is debating that right now. But, you know, there's real discussion uh, that, you know, defense spending could go as, as high as a trillion dollars uh, over the next several years. You know, so again, that's not not next year, maybe the year after, maybe the year, maybe fiscal 25 or probably 26, you know, and, and there is a real question as to whether or not that, you know, once you start to put a T, an uppercase T next to that, uh, you know, spending number, is it does that, is there a sort of a, a ceiling there that, uh, you know, kind of creates some sort of, you know, that, that politicians would be unwilling to sort of broach that trillion dollar level. So we'll have to see what, what happens when we get there. But obviously, what, what goes on in the world uh, makes, a, makes a hell of a difference. And, uh, and, and the one thing I would say is that when you look at sort of the history of U.S. defense spending, it is largely correlated to, to geopolitical events, to changes in the geopolitical structure. You know, and, and you see that, that surge and uh, uh, re reduction, you know, with the, at the peak of the, at, at World War II, at the peak of Korea, at the peak of the Cold War. Um, you know, at at the, the the ramp into the you know really the peak of the global war on terrorism, I guess we'd say you know with, with uh, you know in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, you know peaking around uh, you know two thousand eight, uh, you know coming down around two thousand ten, uh, and, and really I think we're we're in the front end of that uh, of a new ramp. You know, one of the sort of jokes in town is that you know defense spending doesn't stay flat. For, for, you know, forever. It, you know, I think it stayed flat for the last, uh, I think, 13, 2013, 14 and 15. Uh, and then it's sort of been a pretty steady climb. So, I mean, you, you get go through these fits and spurts. And I think we're, you know, really in one of those moments right now. But but the other thing that I, that I think it's important that people recognize, and you know, particularly, you know, investors, but you know, e you know, spending in the European Union and NATO is is surging. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, I think European defense spending bottomed actually in 2014, again, to go back to sort of Putin and Crimea. And then lo and behold, you start a war on the European continent and the Europeans get a little more serious about defense. You do, you know, you get into this next phase, an even bigger uh, war, breaking, you know, sort of conventions and norms about, you know, states going to war with each other. And uh, and you start to see that that surge again. That I think most most of those you know NATO countries are going to surge to that two percent of GDP standard that many have been reluctant to do, uh, and that you know some of them uh, are going up to three percent. Uh, and I think it's you know obviously the countries that have a closer proximity to Russia are, are more uh, apt to do that. But you know, but but the other thing you know, Asia there is a there is a genuine arms race in Asia. Uh, Japan is considering doubling uh, its defense spending. Uh, Australia has been spending and, uh, you know, has a, has a number of uh, ambitious uh, acquisition programs. And obviously the, uh, the AUKUS uh, agreement, uh, the, the three nation uh, or, you know, tri trilateral agreement to share, you know, between the US, UK and Australia to share nuclear technology um, shows the level of commitment there. Um, 
you know, and then, of course, uh, and then the Middle East continues to be a, a robust spending environment as the GCC looks to counter uh, Iran. So, again, I think that, you know, the global defense spending, not just U.S. spending, but global defense spending is going higher. Uh, and, and I think not enough, uh, not enough folks uh, realize that. Roman, let's shift gears to how geopolitics is impacting business policy. Uh, a few weeks back, Congress passed the Chips and Science Act. $52 billion flows towards domestic semis, among other things. What are the important implications of the bill? Who stands to benefit? And also, where might we see other le legislative action like this? Yeah, I, great, great question. And really, uh, I think one of the things, again, when you pull back and, and, and just think about it, this is the U.S. government, you know, consciously deciding that it needs to be engaged in an industrial policy or help shape shape and fund industrial policy to make the U.S. competitive uh, with China. And China, which, you know, again, you know, I don't think it's controversial or unknown, the state that they subsidize, uh, you know, a large number of state-owned entities and drive, you know, uh, our research and development spending into key technologies and subsidize a, a lot of, uh, you know, companies of, of all sizes. And, th and this is really the U.S. government uh, acknowledging that that exists, that that there needs to be countered. Now, of course, there is a fear that, the you know, the whenever uh, the U.S. government gets involved in picking winners and losers, that uh, it doesn't turn out well. But having said that, this this is really, you know, I, th I think the first phase of, of what could be, um, you know, a broader push to shape uh, and to help subsidize or advantage industries, uh, to, you know, sort of loosely dubbed uh, technologies of the future. But but really, you know, the U.S. government has created a a list uh, uh, called uh, Critical and Emerging Technologies. It's a list of technologies created by the U.S. government, created by this White House, uh, but but also it, it, that appears in other places. And I would just say, I mean, I'm just going to rattle off some areas, but it's um, computing, um, manufacturing, network sensing, nuclear energy, biotechnology, communications and networking, uh, human machine interfaces, uh, network sensors, quantum, renewable. I, I even throw in their financial technologies. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what the, uh, the competition there is going to be, but uh, and really, look, this is to counter China's made in 2025 uh, list in which they said, you know, this list of areas are, are areas that they want to uh, dominate, that they believe will be critical technologies and markets in the 21st century, and that they want to, um, you know, set, set the bar. Um, and that is, again, this is, you know, automated machine tools and robotics, aerospace, rail, new energy, agriculture, you know, um, biopharma and, and uh, medical tools and things like that. So, you know, so when you look at the CHIPS Act, this is sort of the, to me, the first sort of battle or, or you know, maybe the first shot in that fight. Um, you know, semi, I think it's been, you know, sort of realized that semis are, you know, are the, are the bullets in sort of the 21st century, um, you know, technology war that are going to drive, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, quantum, 
um, you know, everything else, um, you know, smart devices, uh, everything, you know, they really are an, an enabling technology. Honestly, I think just to, just to frame it out, another example is right now we're in the early phases of, of one on sort of biotech. I think if, you know, there's a, a, a government panel, uh, that's looking at biotech. So that, that could be the next sort of area um, after semis that, that the government kind of looks at as, a, as an area targeted for, you know, either subsidies or industrial policy or, or things like that, that help shape that. Um, now, the one thing I would say, you know, you sort of mentioned, you know, what, what companies are going to benefit or, or, you know, what areas and things like that. We're, we're still in the sort of wait and see mode. Uh, the Commerce Department is uh, going to manage the the Chips Act implementation. They're not used to running a program of that size or that magnitude. And there are some political aspects about this. I mean, you know, there's you know that that companies that receive Chips Act money can't do business in China. Um, that uh, you know none of the funds can be used in uh, you know for share buybacks and things like that. That um, you know there might be conditions you know related to uh, workforce or labor. Um, so, I mean, there, you know, it's, it, it, it's going to be challenging. It, it'll be interesting to see how this is implemented and really whether you get the net effect, you know, the, the kickstart that uh, I think a lot of folks are, are hoping uh, that this does and whether this becomes a model for, for other areas. And then, you know, certainly while there is also a focus on chips, the other thing I would just mention, Chips and Science Act, uh, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer, uh, Senate Majority Leader, who was, you know, really one of the driving forces uh, behind this. He had a, a bill uh, called Endless Frontiers, which uh, would increase the, you know, so when people, you hear people talk about, a, you know, a $300 billion bill, uh, you know, Chips and Science Act. The fifty-two billion was is is uh, an emergency appropriations. That's real cash that goes right into commerce commerce department's bank account to spend and start to dole out in the form of grants and and things like that. Um, but the other money is really increased authorizations that then you need the annual appropriations to be matched with that. But uh, but that is going to be uh, implemented through uh, a you know special department in the National Science Foundation. Uh, and then as well through the Department of Energy. Uh, and so I think that's the secondary piece of that to see, okay, well, what of those other technologies, the things that have, you know, that we've sort of been talking about, um, you know, whether it's uh, robotic or AI or quantum or, you know, those other things, how those programs and projects are going to be uh, be rolled out. So again, not not a lot of details on this. This is this is a, a live issue that's, you know, sort of unfolding as, as we speak. But But again, I think to me, the biggest issue is that the U.S. government has understood uh, or, or understands now that it needs to shape and, and pay for an industrial policy to help counter what uh, what China has been doing. Roman, what are some of the policy initiatives that you're watching in the near term that you think investors will want to pay attention to? Yeah, I think I, look, I, I think the the biggest sort of disruption or uh, inflection point is going to be the midterm elections. And, and I think that because because that, you know, the, the a change in the balance of power in Congress can have such a big impact on the level of defense spending, um, some of our foreign policy, uh, what, you know, weapons packages get approved for uh, nations, what sort of legislation, um, you know, gets passed and signed into law. 
Uh, and so I think there's a, a couple of things, you know, I, as as we're recording this right now, I think that the view is that, you know, the House will flip to uh, Republican control with maybe a, perhaps a much tighter uh, or narrower margin than it would have otherwise, or, you know, just a few weeks ago, uh, and that the Senate could uh, could stay in, in, in Democratic hands and perhaps maybe even grow to a, a genuine majority, maybe 51 seats or something like that. Obviously, the Senate's 50-50 uh, right now with the, 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 the tiebreaker vote being cast by the vice president. From a, from a policy perspective, I think you know November is going to really sort of reset some of these uh, some of these assumptions. Um, you know, certainly um, defense spending, you know, I think is is an area that's going to continue to grow regardless of the outcome. But I think I think China is probably really one of the ones that uh, uh, it could you could have the biggest impact. You know, there are some provisions and some some things that uh, you know were dropped out of the the Chips and Science Act. You know, on investment screening, uh, outbound investment screening, which uh, which which a lot of companies and industries in the U.S. have have opposed, or or that that would basically create a review structure to approve or disapprove any capital investment or joint ventures with China. There are some trade provisions uh, in there as well, and then there's even the Taiwan Policy Act, which uh, would be very uh, inflammatory uh, with the Chinese. But you know, the the House House Republicans created a China Task Force several years ago. They produced a report in 2020. Uh, it had I think something like 80 recommendations. Uh, we we included some information on that in our in our last ahead of the curve report on China. The, the House Republicans really plan to push uh, pretty hard on on China and shaping China policy, as well as I mean, look, uh, Republicans have been you know looking for uh, or clamoring for COVID origin hearings uh, for for a year. Probably going to get some pretty stern stuff on uh, on uh, you know that the that the China task force recommended. So I, I, that's what I really look for is I, I don't see how U.S.-China relations, I mean, I don't see a path for them to get better. I don't see, a, you know, if, if anything, there's going to be probably more catalyst, more friction after the midterms. And then lastly, from a defense policy side, I mean, I think there is a pretty interesting debate as to what the war in Ukraine uh, is teaching us you know, in terms of how modern militaries fight each other. I mean, again, not to belabor this or, or get too too much into the weeds, but, but for the last 20 years, you know, since 9-11, um, the U.S. military, you know, has not really fought a regular military. I mean, I'm going to sort of discount the Iraq military you know at the, at the beginning of the uh, of the war there but you know it, it's been a, been counterterrorism uh counterinsurgency coin uh warfare you know not fighting a peer kind of military and so we're, we're seeing that for the first time right with Russia Ukraine um the you know the destruction of hundreds um you know really thousands of tanks and armored vehicles the use of artillery the advancement uh, you know various applications of drones um, you know, for reconnaissance, for lethal, the, you know, the sinking of a major warship, the, the Moskva in the Black Sea, you know, in terms of uh, shore-launched uh, anti-ship missiles and things like that. And so I think, you know, there certainly in this town, Washington, there's a cottage industry of, you know, people are going to study and so what works and, you know, what works in under any circumstance and what works particularly in this circumstance. But, uh, you know, so I think that debate will go on and uh, we'll see how the 
you know, individual service branches, the Navy, the Army, the Air Force take lessons and, and really change their shift dollars, shift their procurement. And, and it obviously has an impact on companies. Uh, I also think there's a munition cycle uh, that, you know, I think people, one, the usage rate of precision and even imprecise just artillery uh, is is uh, amazing. I mean, I think more so than many war planners had sort of presumed um, and you're going to see that if this if this war goes on. And so I do think we're going to see a pretty significant upcycle in, uh, in munitions, stockpiling and inventory build, um, both in the U.S., in NATO and, and even with a, with a Taiwan or Australia or Japan. And, it, and, and I think there's also just this broader issue. And again, I'll just, you know, certainly not to make light of the the Russians and Ukrainians who are dying on the battlefield. You know, this is certainly not a, you know, not a video game, not a fight on social media or something to be taken um, lightly. But I mean, you know, really you have the Russian military, which I think would be, would have been viewed as the second best military in the world prior to this, not being able to invade its neighbor. And, you know, I, I mean, you know, maybe, you know, a sort of equivalent analogy, right, would be the U.S. trying to invade Mexico or Canada and uh, and not being able to sort of pull it off. You know, whereas you look at what the U.S. has been able to do in terms of projecting power, you know, not 113 miles like Taiwan is from China, but thousands of miles uh, into the mountains of Afghanistan uh, or into the Persian Gulf. Uh, or into Africa, you know, uh, hunting the various uh, terrorist offshoots uh, there. And so, you, you know, you really do realize how credible and capable the U.S. military is. And so I think, you know, as, as people think about, well, okay, what is China really, um, you know, building its military to be able to do? What are the Russians really capable of, the Iranians, North Koreans? I think we will get a broader uh, def uh, defense debate about um, concepts of operations and uh, you know who what what kind of technologies are, are right for for the modern uh, modern battlefields. Roman, a, a final question before we finish up. What are some upcoming Cowan events related to policy that are worth highlighting? We are continuing our, our China uh, call series, our Ukraine call series with uh, with experts both from uh, you know on the, on the economic, uh, technology and and really defense aspects of that. So I would uh, you know encourage uh, uh, listeners to uh, to pay attention for those for those announcements. Um, we're we're trying to keep up a pretty regular uh, cadence on that. You know, in the next you know in in two months, the Cowan Washington Research Group will do our sort of um, post midterm election conference. Uh, it'll it'll be uh, virtual this year, so folks will be able to tune into that, and we'll have sort of a instant reaction from folks on, on from both parties. Uh, and then we'll be able to dive down into, uh, you know, we'll do some panels and, and speakers in terms of all of the areas, thematic areas that uh, the Washington Research Group covers, uh, whether that's, you know, uh, tax and trade, uh, financial services, crypto, cannabis, healthcare, TMT, you know, geopolitics, security and defense. Uh, and, and, and I think that's a That'll be a good marker for folks to really, you know, start thinking about how the next two years are going to look in in Washington in in the run up to the presidential. Uh, and then, last thing, I just I'll, I'll pitch that um, you know we we do our annual uh, aerospace and defense conference uh, in in February, normally in, in early February, and uh, we, we're going to be we're going to be changing that this year. We're going to we're going to be bumping it back. It's going to be more mid February. But uh, big spoiler alert: we're moving from uh, from New York to Washington. 
and uh, we're going to be able to, you know, have a, have a much more he heavy policy focus on that. And uh, and certainly the, most of the companies are headquartered here now. So uh, we expect that to be a, a very positive event uh, in, in terms of moving the conference. So I would just, you know, for, for, for folks out there, please stay tuned uh, in, in terms of our call series. We try to try to bring a, a, a wide group of folks uh, with insights into uh, both China and, and certainly uh, Europe and Ukraine and, and do that on a regular basis. As we wrap up today's podcast, I want to thank Roman for sharing his insights and our listeners for taking time out to tune in. Be well and take care until next month.